You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and from Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters, overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, this is Postmortem. This podcast is an opportunity for me to learn from all of the distinguished guests we have on the show, every single one of them, and to share these insights with you, the people who care about our genre the most. But it's also a chance to interact with the guests and the listeners about new and exciting movies and books and television to look forward to and to consume. I've said that I would offer my recommendations from time to time, and there's no time like the present to offer up some of the movies that have given me the most pleasure over the last few months or so. Some of them we've discussed with their makers, and some of them have just been found and recommended. They come from around the world. There are no consistent themes here, just movies that have moved me in our dark little corner of horror cinema. Of course, Host really captured the world's zeitgeist, a Zoom-set pandemic thriller that couldn't exist without the planet's horrible coronavirus infection. Shudder has really been on a roll here. They've also brought us La Llorona, a Spanish-language film from Guatemala that combines social commentary with genuine chills and terror, all set in an all-too-real world that is brushed with dark and magic. Hulu's Bad Hair and Netflix's His House come to their terrors through the black experience from completely opposite directions, the former in truly inspired and barbed satire and the other in a truly empathetic horror drama about being displaced and disregarded until... Amulet and Relic induce fright in seemingly quiet yet increasingly personal ways. Alone and Hunted are both powerful chase-through-the-woods exercises. The Lodge impressed me with its chilly observance of a splintered family dynamic in a lodge in a snowstorm. Color Out of Space is H.P. Lovecraft at its wildest and weirdest and most vividly insane, with, of course, a raging Nicolas Cage as the cherry on the top. Elijah Wood has a great performance at the center of Come to Daddy, which ping-pongs from its oddball humor to full-on blasts of horror. I liked Swallow for its genuine originality and commitment to playing it real, and Sputnik also gets major points for its originality. This isn't by any means a best-of list of the year's movies, but just a handful that impressed me and gave me the joy of a genre with lots and lots of creative diversity to offer. There have been a whole lot more, and I've got a lot to catch up on. There's some recommendations from me. Let's hear from you about yours. Meanwhile, Neil Marshall has been a guest before, and I'm sure he'll be back again. He's one of the original voices in horror since his first feature, Dog Soldiers. He's made amazing films and television in fantasy, science fiction, and horror. They all have scope, they all have energy. But his new film, The Reckoning, is a bit of a change of pace. We will talk about the new movie and much, much more with Neil and his Reckoning leading lady and co-screenwriter Charlotte Kirk next. So, Neil, we know your background from Newcastle um, and and how your father kind of helped feed your imagination in fantasy and horror and movies in particular. But Charlotte, 
yours, uh, Neil Raiders of the Last Ark was kind of your ne plus ultra that kicked you off. Charlotte, um, gone with the wind, <laughs> 11 years old and, and gone with the wind. Tell Absolutely. me about that. Uh, but, but it was, it was a gradual thing, really. It was, I hated school. I hated anything academic. And as soon as I stepped into that theatre drama classroom, I just changed and I was like, I just knew. And it was a number of um, theatre productions, like I was um, one of the Flower Girls and Oliver Twist and um, Hairspray and um, Iphigenia, Agamemnon. And it was a series of, of these kind of small productions. I just realised that this is what I wanted to do. Just this is what I've loved more than anything, being on stage. So... Yeah, I think that that was it, really. It wasn't like one, like with Neil, it was like he went to the cinema and saw Raiders and that was it for him. For me, it was more of just performing. But I know you love Scarlet O'Hara. Oh, of course. Yes, I do. I do love Gone With The Wind. Um, but actually, since we've been together, I've actually, like, got appreciated more horror films now. Like, one of my favourite films, you know, The Thing, Alien, Aliens. Uh, I'm like the, the Shining. Since I've been with you, I'm like, yeah, they're like my top three films right now. <laughs> so bring it over to the dark side. Yeah. <laughs> well, Neil, you've kind of become the horror guru. You've opened the door for Charlotte to the world. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. you know, compared to some yourself included or whatever, I, I, you know, my 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 knowledge of horror is still kind of largely limited. But um, certainly, we've been watching a lot of horror films. Yeah. Really, since. I guess since we start work on the reckoning, because yeah. um, it was it was kind of me getting back into horror again after a sort of an absence um, of, of wanting to re-educate myself on the genre in a, in a way, and, and and by watching a lot more films, either old films or uh, getting in some of the new ones as well, trying to find some lovely new inspirational material. But um, everything we so watched. it's been a kind of a journey for us yeah. both together to get back into that world. But everything we watched for like preparation for the film or inspiration, there wasn't any other film that was similar to this at all, was there? At not all? Really. It was like just trying to but find. We, a we were also like watching really bizarre, not not obvious connections. Like you, you know, you were hugely inspired by watching things like Gladiator and Braveheart yeah. because it was like a historical film that had revenge, is you know, revenge story things like that. So. I know you found that quite inspiring, but yeah. well, but there I'll, are there are some precedents that that brought uh, that came to mind when I was watching the Reckoning, Witchfinder General, uh, Black Sunday, Blood on Satan's Claw, Devil Rides Out, Cry of the Banshee, the yeah. the whole witchcraft pandemonium that took place in that period in history, particularly in the UK, and then later on in in Salem in the US in 1692. Um, so let's talk about the the witch hunts and and the whole idea behind the demonization of the victim. Well, I mean, you know, that was the that was the hook for us both. Really, was because um, a friend of ours, the, the third writer on the film, Ed, uh, brought us like an, an idea for a film of like it was going to be sort of the witchfinder general meets carry sort of thing where you know she's she's tortured or whatever and then she reveals she really is a witch and she you know Focus zaps focus. everybody and turns everybody into frogs or whatever it was she was going to do and blows people's heads up or something and um ultimately that didn't really interest us 
because it just felt like okay it's kind of the same old same old but the the the, the setting and the world and the persecution of of women and that that kind of thing just seemed incredibly relevant um regardless and thought okay there's got to be something in this so we both like did a ton of research i've got a whole bunch of books about witchcraft and the witch hunts and things like that so we we dive dive into those and the more real it became the more real we wanted to make it which is um trying to you know basing any any tortures that happen in the film are based on real tortures there's nothing fictional about that kind of stuff the stuff that these women i mean the numbers that they talk about is like at least like half a million maybe more maybe a million uh people mostly women not all women but mostly women who were you know persecuted tried tortured and executed for this crime which ultimately doesn't really exist um just fabricated by men to keep control so the more we got into that the more we thought okay there's there's so many the truth is really interesting so there's you know there's a story here if we amalgamate bits of this and bits of that and like make a, an amalgamation story um and then you hit me with the idea of like okay so what if there are no witches in this witchcraft movie and it was like boom that just clicked because if witches didn't exist what if they're like let's just tell the truth there's no no wit or let's leave it ambiguous <laughs> <laughs> but also we found it very hard we were doing all this research on um you know the tortures we was trying to, what we found really hard was actually finding um putting into the film tortures where the the victim actually survived right so you remember the you know the, the, the most famous one was if you you dunk a, a witch in the in the in the water if she drowns she's which she drowns she's innocent yeah if she survives she's guilty and like, she gets what, executed. What, 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 so either yeah. way you're gone yeah exactly which most, one can we do most of the tortures were real catch-22 situations of so like basically you, if you survive you're guilty and if you die you're innocent right what choice have you got yeah uh so we you know we had to find the kind of tortures that were both real but were non-lethal so that at least the character could you know survive to get revenge <laughs> right yeah. And and Charlotte, as the co-writer of the screenplay, bringing in the female perspective, it had to feel particularly relevant to you, this demonization of the innocent. Yeah, no, it um, it really did. It was extremely relevant. And again, obviously, when we were writing this, apart from the relevant of uh, witch hunts and stuff, we didn't know that the, play, the pandemic was going to happen, COVID was going to happen, right? So there's that element to it as well that makes it extremely relevant. But yeah, I think that witch hunts today are still going on. Very, you know, now yeah. more than ever. And um, witch hunts in the media. Witch what's hunts, changed? Cancel, witch... cancel culture is just witch hunts all over again. Sixteen sixty-five to twenty twenty-one. What's changed? Yeah. Well, what was it that we I referenced before? There's um, a woman saying. I'm not going to wear a mask. It's because it's, it's the devil's work or something. Oh, yeah, oh my yeah, god! The that's the devil's work. And then, 16, then... <laughs> it's sixteen sixty-five again. It, it's it's where have we got come? plague masks. We've got the witches' bridles. You know all these kind of other masks that factor into the witch hunts and such like. Yeah. Well, this is this is a real change of pace for you, Neil. Neil, you're particularly known for huge action sequences. The Walkers on the Wall episode uh, of yep. Game of Thrones. It's giant, and this is. This is Neil Marshall in more of a quiet uh, mood, and it's beautifully photographed, and it's very atmospheric, and it's very deliberately paced, and it it approaches its subject matter in a very different approach. Tell me about 
and how you decided to approach this story? Um, I think it was like self-consciously like a little bit more artsy than anything that I've done before, like <laughs> messing around. Even in the script as well, we, we were playing around with timelines and jumping backwards and forwards in time. And, you know, there's like a flashback within a flashback, structures like that that I'd never, never done before. All my stories are pretty much linear, you know, pretty much straightforward. Um, so messing around with that kind of stuff, but also, yeah, I mean, it is a, it's a kind of a pot boiler to a degree that um, I wanted to build the suspense so that when the payoff comes, you really, really feel it. Um, mm -hmm. And I did, I did show a bit more restraint than usual on this one. It's, I think maybe because a lot of the, there was a big assumptions made that all the blood and guts in Hellboy was down to me and it, and it wasn't at all. Um, yeah. So I kind of, with this one, I think I, I wanted to show a bit more restraint and obviously I want to give the fans what they're expecting so that it is in there. And there's a couple of moments that are real crowd pleaser moments, but I didn't just want to throw loads of blood and guts in there for the sake of it. It's like, I wanted to show some restraint and I had no intention or no desire to make a torture movie, a torture porn movie. I'm not interested in that kind of thing. So the idea of having to do deal with torture, but not show it, uh, imply it, suggest it, work around it in so many ways. Yeah, yeah. 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 kind of forced into it, wasn't you? Because you were yeah. either going to go full on torture or rein it back. It was necessary to deal with it because it's real and these women endured it and we can't shy away from that. But at the same time, we don't dwell on it. We're not, I'm not interested in it's that. It's not the titillation of torture that is so common no. in torture porn. Yeah. Um, and it, was, it was also more about the psychological torture she was enduring when she kind of went back to her cell every night. That was that I wanted to focus the horror aspect on rather than the physical torture, which, you know, she finds a way through. Yeah. Well, you both of you have ping pong between independent and, and major studio productions. And uh, this is as independent as it gets, yep. and, which means there were no rules. There was nobody telling you what to do or how to do it. And yeah. as opposed to Hellboy, which was all about doing it my way or the highway, right? Tell me the difference of those experiences, particularly let's talk about Hellboy because you, you've said to me and to others that it was a frustrating experience that did not lead to what uh, you'd hoped it would be. No, it, it was it was the most miserable creative experience I've ever experienced <laughs> in my life. I mean, I didn't have a creative experience. I, there was not there was there was an not, ounce of me. It's not your film. Yeah, there isn't an ounce of me in that movie. So, um, you know, it, it, it belonged to other people. Uh, how did and, that happen? And how did you approach each day um, when you were making the movie, and you knew that this couldn't be what you wanted it to be? Uh, we, we, with growing trepidation really um of just i think at some point you just get to a point where you get numb to it and it's just like you know getting through the days uh trying to do try you, you don't give up you're still trying to do the, the best job possible but it's like it's kind of like working on a on a tv show in a way but in that sense i had way more creative input on the tv shows i've worked on um and that you know you you're working for somebody else it's somebody else's thing um it's not your baby um so the, the flip side of that was i i needed to kind of purge my creative soul a little bit after that that experience and um the reckoning was the way to do it because if hellboy was like all the, all the money and the bells and the whistles but zero creative control 
this was 100% creative control and you know, no money. Um, <laughs> and trying to, you know, you and find your a devil. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but that's, but that was fine. I mean, yes, it came with its own set of problems of like, how can we do it for next to nothing? But it was a joy just to dive into that world again and the way, you know, how it was when I started out with Dog Soldiers of how can I make, how stretch this book and you know, make it look bigger, you know? Well, when you rely on invention rather than uh, than budget, it seems that's when the the biggest sparks seem to fly, right? Absolutely, and there was a lot of invention going on, you know. And and, and you know, the simplest the simplest tricks in the book of, and it's it's one I learned from from our friend Mr. Carpenter was, you know, shoot it widescreen. And in this case, this is the first film I've shot anamorphic, really? um, shooting it anamorphic. Just giving it that those cinematic lens. boom. Those beautiful yeah. lenses you had, those vintage, absolutely vintage lenses. old old lenses, anamorphic, gave it a flavor, and and that just like increases the production value, you know, instantly. <laughs> yeah. Well, Charlotte, the difference between starting out in theater and on the stage, where you're playing to the back row, and then going into the more technical aspects of acting for film, tell me about what that transition was like for you. Um, very different because when you're on stage, everything has to be big, larger than life, projection. And then on my first, my first film, it was almost like the director was telling me, just, just rein it in. You almost feel like, just don't do anything. Just do 50% less. Just, just don't do anything. And I thought, oh God, I don't think I'm doing and then you just you just get used to it after a while, and it just it mainly was just a lot of practice, going into a lot, going to a lot of classes, and realizing that actually less is more. Um, yeah. You know, I look back on some of my earlier work and think, oh god, that is is terrible because <laughs> I'm overthinking it, or I'm in my head, or I'm just less is more. And I have to say, the reckoning is the mo the, the film that I am most proud of. Um, you know, it's the, probably one of the most challenging because I've. I'm kind of carrying the movie in a way so it was I had a big responsibility um and it was it was definitely the most challenging emotionally getting to that emotional point every day it was now uh, my acting coach Susan Batson I don't know if you know her she's phenomenal and like when I was going through I think with her she just said I just said it's it's incredible because every every day I come in and the emotional level is 100% it's never just you know you're having a conversation with someone when you know when you Anyone, when they see the film, you'll see that it's just 100% despair, <laughs> pretty yeah, much. Extremes. Yeah. Extremes every day. So, it, yeah, yeah. It's, learning, it's learning how intimate the camera is. The camera <laughs> sees everything, and it doesn't just see the outside, but it sees the inside. Oh, yeah. It sees the inside. And, and knowing, you know, where you are, if you're doing a close-up or a wide or a medium, so you can kind of adjust to that. But for the for the most part it's just um and i've I just learned so much from this film as well and I, of course i'm very critical i think a lot of actors are when, when i see the film now i think oh, i could have done that could have done that and it's so hard for me to actually see one of my films and actually see it as a film and as an audience i don't know about you but i'm always yeah we all love that yeah, yeah. that's true it is it's to really be hard just, objective just, just about to watch your... it just well, to watch it but, and you also, you, you, but it's interesting. Technically, you yeah. had to learn some stuff as well. You had to learn to ride. You had to learn to sword fight, fight and, yeah. and stuff like that as well. If you haven't done before, yeah. What I would say is, though, as you said that, um, you know, 
from theatre to film. It, what's very interesting is the one thing I do, I know I need to improve on is projection. You think, well, that's funny, come from the theatre, but it's almost like I've gone too far the other way now because I'm scared I'm going to be too big. Be too big. <laughs> so I think that's one of my things. I don't know if you have an issue with that. We always speak up. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. No? No, no, oh, no. Okay. Yeah. Oh, You'd have told me. <laughs> <laughs> I'd let you know. Speak up! <laughs> <laughs> that's all what directing is. Louder. This <laughs> is quieter. Louder, quicker. Or yeah. faster. Yeah, that's it. So uh, this, though, this film is a movie that you both can feel possessory about because you wrote the script. Mm -hmm. Neil, you directed it. Charlotte, you're the lead. And there was nobody overseeing you. It was funded independently with no bosses. So tell me about that experience. How I mean, there's if people love it. It's entirely because of you. If they don't like it, well, it's it's your possession. So yeah. tell me about Very that responsibility. Yeah, that's the, that's just the price you pay, isn't it? As a filmmaker, like at the end of the day, as any artist, you know, you've just got to put, do the work, you know, and put it out there and uh, reap the whirlwind. <laughs> um, and sometimes it's positive, and sometimes it's negative, and and uh, most of the time it's a little bit of both, really. Um, one way or another. So I don't know. We just, I think like, as you say, it's possessory. So you just got to own it. Um, and wait, you know, at the end of the day, I can hold my head up and say, look, I'm really proud of this. And it's yours. Would I do anything differently? Of course I would. Uh, you yeah. know, yeah. given different circumstances, whatever, there's things I might do differently or whatever, but it is what it is. And yeah, you know, but it's so, it's at some all- point you have to literally just put it out there and let it be. Yeah. Exactly. If you don't, feel that there are things you could have done better than your hat. If you <laughs> made your movie and said, this is my masterpiece, glory in it, that's it. I don't have a lot of respect for someone who can do that. Yeah, yeah. then you're an egotist. It's like one, one way or the other, you just can't win. So, And it was very stressful, wasn't it? Because it, it, was, it was our responsibility, not just the... Uh, you know director and actress but it was everything that we you know we wrote it we we did everything produced it um, so we've only got ourselves to blame yeah but it was it was, it was pretty stressful wasn't it <laughs> <laughs> now it's world... like now it's like yeah whatever it's like all i can do is just do my best mm-hmm. in the moment and put it out there and, and and see it and hopefully you know people will enjoy it and i think it is ultimately it's a very satisfying film yeah, you know, it is a, it is a, as you say, it's quite a slow build, but, but the punchline is, it, it gets people's pulses racing, and you know, it's, it's good, it's good. It's it well, and getting it out there is something important to talk about because the world of distribution, even prior to the pandemic, has become so fractured and so difficult for an independent movie in particular to get on screens and nothing can get on movie screens these days. So now it's through on demand or it's through streaming services like Netflix or Shutter or whatever. So tell me about the complications of releasing an independent movie in 2021. Um, well, as you say, I mean, just over the course of the last year, things have changed even more so. I mean, we were very lucky. We had a, we had a, uh, an amazing sales company in Highland Films uh, who took it out to market and uh, uh, thankfully, you know, RLJ and Shudder picked it up um, for both US and UK release. And we managed to get them to 
agree to do a, little, a, a small theatrical window as well as streaming. And really, the only thing that's kind of standing in that, the way of that now is COVID, is the, is the plague. So, so uh, we, we've got to wait and see. On the, it, it opens uh, 5th of Feb uh, in the States. Um, I gather there are cinemas mm -hmm. uh, open there. I don't know where. Not in Los Angeles. <laughs> not in Los Angeles, not in New York, but somewhere. So um, I know it'll play some places on the big screen and it's worth catching there if you can um, and then in the UK they've pushed the release back to April 16th in the hope that perhaps the current lockdown will have ended by then and maybe fingers crossed touch wood uh, people can go back to cinemas and see it there because that would be amazing. Now you were both born in the UK uh, Charlotte in Kent and uh, and Neil in uh, um, Newcastle on time uh, Neil you I think both of you have lived on in the U.S. and in the U.K. and you're in the U.K. now. Is that a permanent situation? Uh, it's looking more, yeah, maybe. I don't know. We're, we're trying to figure it out. Which we want to kind of jump between both, but obviously there's sort of travel restrictions yeah. and stuff right now. There's no, there's no. Can never. We're in lockdown and in a bubble right now, so we just got to stay this way for the time being. But it's weird, isn't it? Because mm -hmm. it's like when we're in LA, that's not home. When we're here, we kind of miss LA. I feel like we're kind of nomads in in a way. And then we love our life I, in LA, but we're also a lot of the stuff that we're trying to get off the ground right now is kind of UK based or UK centric or whatever. So um, mm -hmm. I can see us like doing some more work here. We've made. Some, through the reckoning, we've made some great contacts and we want to try and explore that a little bit further. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So well, I don't know. It's up in the air right now. Shara, tell me what is the appeal of cinema to you? What about movies and uh, visual storytelling it captivates you, makes you want to be a part of that? Everything. The... the <laughs> Everything about it. Big question, big answer. It's yeah, <laughs> it's just pure escapism. It's, it's 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 diving into another world, and whatever it is, if it's if it's horror, if it's drama, if it's comedy, it just takes you away. And especially now when it's it's a tough time, and we any time I think you know when when we're living, we always have struggles and and we're going through things, and it's just just. It's so, so difficult to explain, but it's just watching something, turning it on and switching off and diving into that world. Just everything about it. And yeah, the story, the stories, the characters, the appreciate the, the, the music, um, just everything about it. Yeah. Being a maker and, and a needle. Yeah, it is, it is, it's a medicine. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's also there's a big difference between writing and directing, Neil, as someone who does both myself. The the experience is so entirely different from being by yourself in front of a computer. In this case, yeah. maybe just the two of you together. Yeah. But I work very isolated in my Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters studios here. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just me by myself. And it's incredibly rewarding to just be here and typing and feeling free and doing everything. But by the time you're on a set, you're surrounded by a hundred people who are asking you questions every 30 seconds, needing a decision. And you have to make that decision and you have to be right and stick with it and follow it through. 
So some people excel at writing and are not that good at the social uh, elements of directing a cast and crew. Uh, others work the other way. They're incredibly good in that, that maelstrom of humanity that is the making of a movie. And are, they struggle through the writing process. What is it for you? Um, I don't know if it's for me to say whether I'm, which one I'm good at or not, but, um, but the comfort know, level. The yeah. comfort level. I, I, I love being in the trenches. I like being on set and, and that, the camaraderie and, you know, the esprit de corps of being on set and that family unit that you build around you for that period of time, that little bubble. I, I, I definitely, I love that. I think it's brilliant. Uh, writing is pain for the most part. <laughs> um, no, writing is difficult. Um, sometimes, you know, there are days when writing is a joy and you just, you can't get out of the, you, know, you can't type fast enough. Um, and the, but most of the time it's just like, it's just hair pullingly painful as you can see. <laughs> so, uh, well, so I don't know. It's, that, that's my thing, but at the same, you know, each, each step has its joys. You know, the writing is, it's just, it's, it's you and it's the freedom of the empty page kind of thing. Um, but, but then there's the set and the camaraderie and then the editing is, you know, the post-production is, is equally amazing in its own way. And it's a different group of people and, you know, but the, I'd say on set is my real love. Well, like we talked about earlier, you really do excel in action and putting together action sequences. And although I've done some action sequences in a lot of the things I've done, never anything as elaborate as the things that you've done in so many of your pictures. Um, can you take me through the construction of how you put together, let's say, the walkers on the wall? Um, what your approach is? Do you start with storyboards? Do you, you've got the script. Script says this happens and it's a maelstrom of action. So. <laughs> Start start the process with me from the beginning and tell me how you work your way through that final project. project. Um, okay, so well, in terms of, and this is kind of something that was very relevant on Game of Thrones because both episodes I did were battle episodes and certainly in Watchers in the Wall. Um, firstly, I apply, uh, like, because I'm a, a student of military history, so I apply kind of battle strategy to the script, as in, like, does the battle make sense from a hmm. pure logic point of view who which sides are trying to achieve what and how are they going to achieve it and if that makes sense that's a good start and then um watches in the wall was really difficult on so many levels because it had so many different aspects to it you had a, some some of it was just down and dirty fighting others was like giant cg mammoths which were like 100 percent cg and how do you do that and then interacting the two together so obviously with the help of a great crew and a great team around you that can help break it down into its component pieces. Um, but for what one example would be, uh, I, I walked onto the set of Castle Black for the first time, never seen it before, walked into the center of the courtyard and I'm looking around going, I know I have to stage a battle here. It's kind of flat and not very interesting in the middle, but all around it is this 360 degrees steps and gantries and walkways and battlements and stuff like that. And I thought, well, this is where... They, so were they all practical? practical? Yeah, that's all practical. Yeah, so it was all a physical set. and not a physical set. Yeah. And my thought was immediately like, okay, that's where I want to stage the fighting in the, in the geographically interesting part as well. 
And then it was like, okay, so it's all around in 360. So what if we just stuck a camera crane in the middle and did like some big sweeping 360 shot around the whole thing? And it, there was no call for any of this in the script. There was no mention of it at all. Um, and I came up, I designed this, this shot and I was like, well, okay, if I'm going to come up with a shot like this, what's the motivation for it? Why, why am I just, I can't just throw it in because it looks good. What, <laughs> yeah. What's it doing? What's this story actually doing? Um, and so I came up with this idea of like, what if we have one shot that shows that it's literally just like stops, almost stops the battle. It doesn't really, the battle's continuous, um, stops the battle to show each character where they are geographically in that battle at that particular moment. And the camera will go from character to character to character to character because we had so many characters to follow. Suddenly there was like a, a dramatic and narrative reason to have the shot. And, uh, and so that's when they said, okay, it's not in the script, but we love the idea. So let's do it. Um, and then, then you get into the practical considerations of how are we going to do it? And the shot lasted 45 seconds. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't know how technical you want me to get here, but okay, oh, go the, for it. Yeah. The shot lasted 45 seconds. So if, if all the stuntmen started off their sword fighting, when, when we call action, by the time the camera gets around to the last guys, they will have finished their moves. Because they do, they, they they rehearse like a sort of thirty second, twenty second, maybe little fight number. But if you have everybody starting at the same time, they're going to run out of fight before the camera gets all the way around. So, so it's so a row of dominoes falling as you go around. Basically, yeah. So the first AD, then you know, me and him, the first AD steps in and he says, "Okay, you, your group, you're number one. Your group, you're number two, and so and so around to like group ten. Um, and as the camera goes around, he's shouting out one and two and three, and they start their action just before the camera gets there. So the camera sweeps through, sees everything it needs to see. And by the time it leaves, they're done. Um, and so we did it and, and we rehearsed it. We rehearsed it about two or three times and got it on seventh take. And so it, it's, it's, I think we rehearsed it for like a, an hour or something and shot it in about 20 minutes. It's so vast. And, and it just gave that sweep to the whole thing. I think it's like, I, I love action movies. I like watching action movies. I aspire to be a half-decent action director and want to give audiences that thrill. So I'm always trying to... And and I kind of like the bigger, you know, the bigger the better. I, I love the scale. I love... That doesn't really daunt me at all. I like big stuff. And and who are the people who've inspired you the most in that regard? Uh, well, obviously Spielberg. Um, you know, amazing stuff. But then people like, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of Peckinpah. Love Peckinpah's stuff. Um, and more recently, I, you know, I think, um, you know, uh, Gareth Evans. You know, oh, yeah. Amazing. Um, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a bunch. John Woo. Obviously. <laughs> yeah. So, Charlotte, what are the things, that, what are the movies that have excited you recently? What are the things that you look for in a movie? What have we watched? We've watched a lot of TV recently. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <I'm not> all. <laughs> in terms of films lately. Um, well, even in terms of television, the things that, that have really connected with me. I really like The Undoing. Oh, wasn't that great? It was brilliant. 
really just captivated from from the mo that moment. Oh, I just loved it. From Hugh Grant was phenomenal. Oh God, yeah, he was amazing. He's so watchable, really? isn't he? He's so good. We've been watching some great documentaries um, about serial killers because we like yes, yes, Night we Stalker, yeah. Night Stalker. Oh yeah, God, that was yeah. what was the Memphis Three? Was it called? Um, the Memphis the, Three, the West Memphis Three, but there's this. Um, Did you see that one on HBO? Paradise Lost? We finally oh. caught up with Paradise Lost. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my movies. god, how incredible! What a and journey! Then P. Jackson's thing afterwards. Which one? Uh, oh, World War II one? Uh, no, no, the um, he made he produced the film about the West Memphis Three. Oh, uh, right, yes, yeah. Uh, I can't then, wait uh, to see his Beatles, his uh, oh, uh, so good. And, and did you see um did you see the ripper as well yes well we have a bloodthirsty taste don't we <laughs> well, it's a great documentary on charles manson a few months ago yes oh, there's a new, yeah, the new manson one's fantastic yeah, yeah we, we we're into documentaries at the moment aren't we because you like your forensic files and, i do <laughs> like, <laughs> you're really into blood and guts and, and that yeah. Thing. yeah well films and television used to be at opposite ends and neil last time you were on we talked about this because you've dove deep into this new silver age of television that yep. challenges feature films there's more interesting stuff going on you've produced lost in space series um you've dug deep into things that you know west world and and timeless the things that allow you to do things on television that you could barely do in features in years past so tell me about the walking between the lines of well we've talked about the difference between studio feature films and independent feature films but let's talk about the difference between working in television and in feature films um well as you say you know the lines are, are, are so are, are increasingly blurred as you know the standard the quality of television now is as good as any feature film and because people expect that now they don't expect to come back from the cinema and watch something on tv that looks like you know, really rough and ready it's like they want the same thing mm. especially when you when you're watching movies on tv as well they have to stand tv shows and movies have to stand next to each other and be, there'd be no obvious difference between the quality of them so um and there's you know television has, has always had good quality in terms of drama or writing or performances but now the the, the visual qualities and the effects and all that kind of have, have caught up with all that now so there's that actually making the two things is um there is a kind of, there is a market difference definitely you you um you park you firmly park your ego at the door when you go in to make a tv show um and it's not about your vision, you're, you're, you're there to direct the hell out of somebody else's vision and, right. you know, and make their baby. And that's fine. Um, once I think once you acknowledge that, it's like, okay, no more ego. I'm there to do that job and I'll do it to the best of my ability and have a lot of fun doing it. And you can have a lot of fun doing it because in some ways there's kind of less pressure on you. You, you don't have to go home and uh, lie awake all night worrying about it so much. You can get a good night's sleep. Um, yeah. It's not about doing less of a job or anything. It's just it's a different kind of pressure. Um, I found that, you know, when I was doing uh, the occasional episodic TV show on somebody else's show, I yeah. resisted it for years. But when I finally did it, I had some of the most rewarding times ever on a set. You know, doing a couple episodes of Once Upon a Time, I'm doing things that I'd never done in the movies before 
or in the other well, that, television series of my own. And, that, and that's it. And you can, you know, if you manage to do like two or three shows a year, you might jump from doing a sci-fi to a horror to a drama to a whatever. You know, I was doing pirates and sci-fi and cowboys and, you know, Western, you know, doing all sorts of things. So that was fun. And um, packing those in, 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 you know, the same year, whatever, you, it's, the variety is a lot of fun. So dipping your toes in different waters, like you say, I, I never, I, I didn't think I'd ever get to do a Western until I did Westworld. It's like, hey. It, it, it's amazing the opportunities out there. And television is so much more bold than it is. It started with HBO, but now because of the streamers with Netflix yeah. and Amazon and Hulu and Shutter and all of these places, they're competing with feature films and they're competing with each other. Most people watch their feature films on their televisions, yeah. on their home systems and the like. So it's got to look as good as a feature film. Is the, is, is the, you know, the quality threshold. There are no limitations on television anymore. Yeah, yeah. Censorship issues you still have on broadcast TV, uh, but but virtually not at all in the streamers. Yeah, yeah, which is great. You know, just where have for- other than other than on the reckoning, where have you felt the most free? Um, probably the descent. Um, yeah. I think you know there was a certain amount because with Dog Soldiers, uh, was my first feature, so you know I think people were. I had their eye on me a little bit more, uh, but I kind of proved myself a dog soldier. So on descent was, uh, I had a, a degree of freedom on there. I think I had quite a bit of freedom on um, Doomsday as well. Um, yeah. First time given a healthy budget and just left to go down to Cape Town and make a completely daft film. <laughs> <laughs> a very, 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 uh, very prescient film now, you know, lockdowns and, plagues and such like uh Your second plague film now the reckoning yeah or plagues on the brain yeah but, uh, you you have yes. to complete the trilogy of plague films yeah. plague yeah. films okay oh. <laughs> <laughs> so charlotte um as you got to know neil as a human being but then as a filmmaker i would love to hear what your what your feelings were as you were introduced to his work did you know his work before or was it something that came later on after you'd met when we first started um, talking, we met on Facebook. <laughs> I thought, well, I have to. Um, I, ha- I hadn't, no, I hadn't seen his films. So I think the first one I watched was The, the Descent. Oh, and wow. I couldn't sleep for about three nights, just terrified. <laughs> and then um, I watched Centurion, which I absolutely loved. I loved The Descent, but. I wasn't really into horror back then. Right. Maybe a bit more, made me appreciate it a bit more. Um, yeah, and then I watched Centurion that I, I absolutely loved. And then Dog Soldiers. Um, yeah, just I, I think that people, a lot of people see you as a horror director and you're an incredible horror director, but I also think you're, you can do anything. I don't think you can. Yeah, I think a lot of people just see Neil as a great horror director. But then as you, when people see The Reckoning, I think it's as much as a drama than it is um, a, a horror. Oh, absolutely. Uh, There's no question about that. And I, that. Yeah. I think I think the best horror movies are great dramas before they're great horror movies. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, The Exorcist is a perfect example of like 
what incredible drama that is about a mother and a daughter yeah. you know yeah i mean some of the films i was you mentioned earlier Neil. some of the films i was watching for research was um the scarlet letter it's mm. just a complete beautiful love story tragic love story gladiator uh, and Braveheart, they were like my two go-to inspirational films for this. Um, so it was to get your blood up for when you were going around hacking people up with swords and stuff. That's what partly was. that, <laughs> yes, but partly that they're really in. in oh, do you, they're not horror films, right? They're they're dramas and well, you know thrillers. I mean, and, um, Braveheart got plenty of blood and guts in it, though. Yeah, but I won't call it a horror film. Oh God, no. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, no, not unless you're English. But you're uh, apart from the Scarlet Letter, which is you know like Braveheart and then Gladiator, which are on like top two, I was thinking. But there's no really like female heroine that I can think of, like inspirational film, really. I was thinking, um, no, I just, so just had Russell Crowe and uh, Mel Gibson to <laughs> inspire yeah. me. It's like no powerful women. Whatever works, you know. No, no, but it was interesting. I was like, well, there, there has to be. So it was very inspiring. I thought, well, there we go. But the reckoning on the map, and uh, people might watch the reckoning for some inspiration one day. Yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> who who are some of the uh, actresses that have inspired you, Charlotte? I love. Um, sorry, I feel like I'm talking a bit funny because the dentist, and I feel like I'm <laughs> swearing. But I <laughs> I love Susan Sarandon. Ah, uh, yeah. She is just oh, I I loved her in that her um. Jason Spader, what film was that? Who? Oh, no, uh, White Castle. Yes. Right. James Spader. Oh, yeah. James Spader, yes. Yeah. Love that film. Love her. Um, she's probably my favourite. Um, and then I love um, Olivia, I'm terrible with names. Olivia Coleman. Coleman. Love oh, Olivia yeah. Coleman. She's so great. Phenomenal. Um, I so didn't. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, Neil, what is this about a sequel to Dog Soldiers? Oh, <laughs> he's heard about it already. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, it's the question I usually get asked most often, like in the past, whenever it is, 18 years since the movie Sorry. came out. <laughs> no, no, it's, 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 it's feeling more possible now than ever before. And myself and the original... You know, what the original team said there's only one surviving cast member really um, mm. from the original um, are all up for it if we can make it happen. Um, I don't think it's going to happen like imminently, but it's certainly looking more possible now than it has for a while. And, you know, I, I'd love to give it a go. You know, oh, he's so humble. Yes, he's going to be <laughs> very <laughs> soon with uh, uh, Kid. <laughs> have, have, have a franchise a bit late in the day. Is there a script? <laughs> Uh, there is not a script, not yet. I haven't got that far yet. I mean, because there was, uh, at the time we made the first one, I had a whole bunch of ideas for a potential sequel that never really came to light, but... Um, well, you put those I, back up now. Yeah, was, some of them might work, some of them might not, because um, one of them was essentially like picking up the next day, so that's not going to work. Not <laughs> <laughs> after 18 years, yeah. Now, um so yeah, I'll have to have a rethink about it and just see where I want to want to take it. That's you know trying to capture the the essence of the first movie, but without having the same cast for the yeah. most part. It's going to be come interesting. Back ghosts or werewolves. It'll be a, it'll be a challenge, but I'm totally up for it. Like, you know. Well, speaking of sequels, how do you feel like the Descent was your movie, a hundred percent your movie, and one of the best 
most claustrophobic horror films, tense, frightening films. Uh, I, I love it to death. Uh, and, and then there was a sequel that you had nothing to do with. How does that feel to, to have something of yours co-opted, sequelized, and out there? Um, I think it's, well, it's a, sh it's a shame that, you know, it, it didn't ultimately come off as, for my money, it would have been better to have no sequel at all to The Descent. But it's like they were going to do it anyway because they had the rights; they could do it regardless. Um, and maybe I should have sort of taken, tried to try to you know take some control and ownership over it and make it better. Um, I kind of stepped away from it and you know allowed it to be what it was going to be. But I mean, hopefully that it doesn't take away from the first film. Well, uh, what could? nothing can take away from something that already exists. Uh, I've never seen the sequel. I don't know of its virtues or its negatives, but but it certainly has nothing it, it to do seemed, with it. It seemed it was made with the wrong intentions, which is never usually a good start. And, you know, it wasn't even written with in the same way because I'd spent a long time developing the script for The Descent and the whole aesthetic of how it was going to be um, shot, the idea of, like, there not being any natural light in the caves because caves are pitch black, uh, and all the characters having to, we had to map out kind of, uh, you know, who was carrying what particular light source and where they were going to be and make sure that, that we'd be able to see them in the scene. So they had to have something um, and working on that factored into the script quite heavily. And I think whoever ultimately wrote the, the final script or whatever did not take any of that into account. And therefore you end up with a, um, a movie that does have all the things that we didn't want to have in the first film, which is, <laughs> Caves that are like just mysteriously lit from mysterious sources, um, and that's that's a disappointment. It doesn't keep the same. Make sure aesthetic. the girls wear shorts. Yeah, and and just yes, odd, odd choices like tearing somebody's pants to make them wear shorts for no reason. <laughs> yeah, uh, it it was it was it was an odd thing, and that's why I think it's like if there's going to be a dog soldiers too, then um, I'm damn well going to be in charge of it. <laughs> Uh, that sounds like a good idea. And Charlotte, what about Nicole and OJ? What's happening with that? Um, well, they they so it's it's a two it's a two parter. So we shot pretty much just over half of the film, which is all the Nicole and OJ stuff because we're all um, that's all flashbacks. Uh, but the story is about Douglas McCann, um, an attorney in search of the truth of what happened. It's a it's um, pretty controversial. Um, it's nothing like the TV show. Uh, the director, writer, director did a lot of research for it, and he thinks otherwise. He thinks that OJ is innocent. Um, but it really kind of leaves it, you know, because the TV show was very, he's guilty and this is why. And, you know, the director did a lot of research for the, for the film. And um, it's all backed up by facts. I think that's the main thing. It's not just speculation. It's all 100% facts. So uh, he, he wants to finish it this year. He thinks, you know, ho hoping and praying for release, uh, release early next year. So, tell, me, tell me about playing an actual human being, someone who existed uh, rather than a fictional character. Is there a sense of responsibility about that? It was really, really difficult. Um, you know, I did feel very insecure at the time um, because I was, I think, when I landed the role, I was 21 um, and 
you know, being non-American and it was one of my first films and having such a responsibility and, you know, the world sees Nicole in such a certain light and she's a victim. And the way the director, writer-director put her on the page, it was more about who she was as a human and, of course, everyone has flaws. So I was, it was, it was really difficult because I thought... Am I? Is everyone going to hate this? And and not trying to mimic her because I think that's totally wrong when you're trying to play a real life person. But having my own interpretation, but still having her spirit, so people can actually say, "Yeah, uh, that looks like Nicole. I believe her as Nicole." So it was very difficult. I think Nicole Brown Simpson and The Reckoning were my most challenging roles yet for different reasons. Nicole because she's a real life person, and The Reckoning for other reasons, but. Um, yeah, I just hope um, Boris Kojo played OJ. He was he was great. He really looks like him as well, and with all the makeup. And um, yeah, we'll see see what everyone thinks when it comes out. Yeah. Well, <laughs> tell me about the experience of writing together. Nick, I, I assume Charlotte that this was your first time in the screenwriter chair. Yes. Uh, it so working together, how was that? Were you on the opposite sides of a table? saying this 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 or how did it work uh so yeah i mean i you know i i i guess i do the majority of the typing but <laughs> it's based on discussions and arguments and conversations that we have uh you know i'll do some then we'll read it through bounce it backwards and forwards mm -hmm. and but more often than not it comes from the conversations that we have of where the story's going and the completely left field ideas that Charlotte throws into the mix, that are, which is wonderfully not based on any kind of like uh, you know, a growing horror, not horror awareness, mm. but uh, but we're not thinking about things in that. But thinking, context I'm, I, as well. it's interesting because you're thinking of things as a director, and I'm thinking of things as an actress, and it, you know, and it's completely different, and it's really mm. good because it's like, yeah, but have you thought about this and you know, real character-led stuff and you're thinking of it visually and charlotte you're not drawing from an encyclopedia of horror movies that you've seen you know no. coming yeah. from place. no i i was, I was writing i didn't even think of it as a horror film i just thought i'm writing a, a didn't even think of a genre at all i was just just thinking of um just writing the best story we can really yeah, just nailing the characters was um the main thing and you you, you know you're always we always like questioning each other and challenging each other and things like that. So it, it, it works out pretty good. Yeah. I don't think it would work if we were like sitting on opposite sides of the desk trying to write at the same time. <laughs> no. So Neil, is there a movie or a book or a project that, that you really want to do that you've not been able to, that you'd love to get your hands on to turn into a movie? God. Um, there was there were so many the thing is that you know i've got a backlog of scripts that i still want to get made um you know i've got my, my world war ii alien invasion movie and i've got my king arthur sequel thing going on my excalibur you know what happened next uh, <laughs> i've got i'm developing about three different tv shows um so all those in terms of a of a in terms of a book I'd always fancy doing an adapt a, a, a contemporary adaptation of King Solomon's Mines. Oh, um, so that would be fun, and maybe a, just a really lavish 
um, kind of old school version of the Prisoner of Zender because I always loved that. Nice. And Charlotte, is there a role that you really want to tackle? You bought the book the other month, and I was like, "Oh my god, this would be amazing." Um, Medusa. Oh. And Blondie. <laughs> well, okay. I sing as well, uh, and Dusty Dusty Springfield. Uh, <laughs> who are you singing into into? but my right now my my dream project is actually something another thing that me and neil co-wrote together um it's a gangster movie um and it's just it's my baby i just adore it i just love it it's um it's it's layer cake meets scarface no nice <laughs> we we it's you know um, we we came up with an idea whilst eating sushi one day in London, of like yeah. what about uh london-based female scarface nice uh we kind of, well yeah half london half cape town yeah and we but, kind but of took I, that I, idea and ran with it because my whole thing was a female gangster which i don't think has been done or done to what we at, at, at yeah, that way gangster female gangster and a lot of films these days play it safe. Something completely outrageous, like just all out of there, right? Just trying to push the envelope a little bit. Yeah, push your en envelope. So it's very outrageous in every sense of the word, and it's it's just packs a lot of attitude and a lot of action, uh, violence. Yeah, a lot of violence. Very violent. <laughs> all right, I'm I'm buying a ticket. <laughs> it's called Duchess, by the way. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, guys, I thank you so much for spending some time with us here on the Postmortem Slab. And I look forward to doing it again. And all the best of luck with the reckoning and everything beyond. And can't wait for Duchess. Oh, always you. a pleasure. And so good to see you. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. <laughs>